0: Welcome to the Truth Hurts Program. I'm Steve Z. Let's get right to it.
1: Steve Z and the Truth Hurts Program. Welcome back to Let's Pick a Jury! Today's criminal trial for murder involves a veteran police officer with 18 years of public service and his involvement in the death of a criminal drug addict in Minneapolis, Minnesota. A criminal with a lengthy felony and misdemeanor record.
2: As always, the potential jurors are competing for possible fame and potential future fortune in tell-all books, documentaries, speaking tours, which you all know can be quite lucrative, and some of our past show contestants have gone on to television and movie careers, modeling, and even politics.
1: That's right. Yes, who could possibly forget the jurors in the O.J. Simpson trial oh so many years ago and all the money they made just by being on that jury.
2: Of course, our American legal system says that each juror must be impartial in rendering their verdict and they must only consider the evidence presented during the
1: trial. That's right! They cannot allow anything that they've read about, heard about, or seen on the TV or videos or social media to influence their decisions whatsoever.
2: In this trial, that will be extremely difficult, because unless you've been living under a rock in Indonesia somewhere, you have most certainly heard about the eight-plus minutes that a criminal counterfeit-passing drug addict high on fentanyl and methamphetamine spent screaming, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And then he resisted arrest and died of a drug overdose and heart complications. Oh, believe me, folks, you have definitely heard about this criminal and the cop who tried desperately to restrain him as he resisted arrest, kicked, and tried to flee.
1: That's right, fans. It'll be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to seat an impartial jury on this one. Given the fact that the cop is white, the dead criminal is black, and months and months of riot and destruction have occurred in the wake of his death, not to mention the fact that the media itself is anti-white, anti-cop, yes, folks, this will be hard to accomplish.
2: That's right. And given the fact that the current political administration is in the tank for the minority community and hell-bent on defunding the police, the Democrats really need a win on this jury. They need a conviction in order to pander to that minority crowd. After all... You can't sell $300 sneakers if you lose the case, and all those sneakers will end up being stolen in the riots and looting that are sure to come if this police officer gets off without being convicted.
1: And that's why this program is the number one spectator sport in the USA. Welcome to Let's Pick a Jury! Our
2: first juror is described as a progressive white chemist and claims that his years in liberal college programs will not sway his ability to render an impartial verdict. He knows that the process will paint a target on his back
1: if he does not vote to convict, so he's got one hell of a lot riding on this verdict. And being fresh out of college, this clown probably drives a freaking Prius. He probably has a rainbow bumper sticker on the painted bumper. That's commitment.
2: Yeah, you just can't peel those things right off the paint that causes damage.
1: Our next juror describes herself as a mixed-race millennial, and she says that one of the main reasons she registered to vote in the first place was to get rid of the orange man, and the hope that she'd be picked for this jury. She's an insulin dependent, diabetic, whose uncle is a cop, and she says she can be impartial. I wonder if Uncle Policeman
2: touched her in her no-no places as a young girl. And this is her way of getting back at him
1: and the police. That whole mixed-race thing kind of reminds me of an old Star Trek episode. How's that? Well, you know how Mr. Spock was a green-blooded Vulcan. He had pointy ears, so he was automatically associated with being Vulcan. He never mentioned his human half.
2: Yeah, but what the hell does that have to do with this mixed-race woman?
1: Well, it all depends on skin tone and hair. It's usually about the hair. And besides, she said she agreed with the Black Lives Matter riots, and she doesn't think that drugs could have possibly caused this criminal's death, so she's unlikely to be capable of understanding the autopsy reports. Well, they say you've got to follow the science. Yes, yes, unless, of course, the science goes against your biased beliefs.
2: Our third juror says he's a business auditor and describes himself as a white guy in his 30s, a millennial who claims to have a friend of a friend of a friend who's a cop but he claims that he doesn't know much about the police. He said also that the fact that the dead guy has hard drugs in his system won't have any influence on his verdict. He said whether or not you're involved with drugs should not affect whether you end up alive or dead.
1: What the hell's this guy been smoking? Of course having drug overdose and massive amounts of drugs in your system will have an effect on whether you're alive or dead! this guy doing, smoking crack?
2: His obvious bias showed up right away when he said he had dismissed reports of the dead criminal's checkered past, and he said what happens in the past should not be on trial here.
1: Oh, cut me some slack! I guess some guy that runs around and robs banks and robs banks and robs banks can simply get off on his next bank robbery trial because what he did in the past shouldn't count? Come on,
2: man! I bet he'll be listening really, really closely to the testimony of every single complaint that that police officer has in his past, though, won't he?
1: Yeah, you're right about that. Juror number four is a black immigrant who arrived fresh off the boat 14 years ago. His bias was obviously on display when he answered a question about the situation surrounding the death of that criminal while he was resisting arrest and high on drugs. He said during his trial questionnaire that he discussed with his own wife how it easily could have been him on the ground with a knee upon his neck.
2: Wow, makes you wonder. Will these jurors be given all the facts, you know, like body cam video evidence of the dead criminal resisting arrest?
1: Seeing all the evidence will be key to a fair trial, but the judge in this case makes me wonder just how much evidence will actually be allowed.
2: Our fifth contestant is a white woman in her 50s. She claims to be a single mother who made it clear that the criminal did not deserve to die. So you know she's already made up her mind. She claims to be worried about her personal safety after the trial once her name is made public. So you know which way she's gonna vote.
1: Ah, those single white Karens. You know damn well she's gonna vote to convict that cop. A black
2: bank employee is juror contestant number six. He's a basketball fan, and he coaches youth round ball in the black community.
1: Well, isn't that nice? He was asked by the prosecuting attorney how he would feel having to face little black kids on the playground if he were to vote to not convict that evil white prick cop for murdering a brother in the hood. So we know where his vote will be headed.
2: You got that right. Contestant number seven is a white woman in her 50s, and she could not wait to get on this jury. The widow with two adult children said the riots happened near her home, and that she thought the cops should have handled the ordeal with this black criminal much differently.
1: Yeah, and she was even justifying the riots, so we all know where her verdict vote will be headed.
2: Number eight on our list of jurors is a black management professional in his 40s. Now that should say something right there.
1: Yeah, you're right, man. You are absolutely right. The fact that this guy's managed to live into his 40s without being killed by all that systemic racism of the Minneapolis Police Department should just mean one thing. What's that? He isn't a criminal thug!
2: Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. But wait a minute, this guy's an immigrant, and those folks generally keep to themselves in their own little ethnic circles, so perhaps he didn't get to interact with the cops as much as the locals. After all, he said he knew about the $27 million settlement with the criminal's family, and he said he wouldn't hold it against the cop if the cop doesn't stand up to defend himself in court.
1: I understand, but you gotta watch those imports. Sometimes they'll forget about why they left their home countries to come here for a better life.
2: You got that right. Oh, you've got that so right.
1: Number 9 in our list of contestants is listed as a mixed-race 40-something female, a working mom who's already made up her mind. She said she saw the video and the man died and the other cops didn't do a damn thing to stop it from happening.
2: Yep, she's certainly made up her mind. She's already passed her guilty verdict on and now she's condemning the other cops involved. I'm sure some reality show director is probably already doing background research for her to appear in some reality show.
1: Or at least by some national advertising firm. You know, they love putting those mixed-race folks in all the ads nowadays.
2: I can't believe they let her on the jury, to be honest. And with her statement that as a mixed-race woman, she's never experienced any inequality?
1: Well, that's hard to believe. In America, from what I've been told, every minority, and certainly every mixed-race female, is constantly harassed, berated, and discriminated against. You know she must be lying.
2: And Then there was a question that was directed to her to steer her away from being disqualified. I can't believe the defense attorney didn't object to this question. He said, what do you think would have happened to you if you had inadvertently left the store without paying for something?
1: Incredible! Are trying to steer her into thinking that this dead criminal walked out without paying for a pack of cigarettes? The man was deliberately passing counterfeit bills! It wasn't an accident, he did it on purpose!
2: I know, it is incredible the levels that these prosecutors will go to
1: to try and seek
2: a biased jury.
1: Let's talk about juror contestant number 10, a single white nurse in her 50s. What, is she a
2: fatty? An uggo? How do you get to be a 50-something-year-old single white nurse unless you're really... Never
1: mind. You're so, so right! And she said she, too, knows about a civil settlement with the criminal's family, but that doesn't mean the cop was guilty automatically.
2: She claims she's not formed her opinion yet, but that eight minutes is entirely too long for a person's knee to be on someone's neck.
1: Perhaps she, too, is hoping to get a book deal on this. Or maybe her and her cats can retire and live a comfortable life after retirement once she gets paid off.
2: Meow. Cause you know, crazy cat lady, right?
1: That's correct! Juror contestant number 11 is a black African American 13% minority hyphenated American grandmother who volunteers at a youth organization. She has her collective crap together when it comes to this jury's selection. Oh, yeah? How's that? Well, she's the only contestant who brought a cheat sheet with her to court.
2: Oh, like Joe Biden and his three-ring
1: binder? Exactly! Fully rehearsed, fully prepared, all of her pre-selected responses right there, ready to reference. She wanted
2: to be on this jury. Like a mission. She heard about the Minneapolis civil settlement with the Floyd family. She said it's not affected her thoughts on the case. And she said the bystander's video has popped up on her social media feeds... She's probably watched it four or five minutes before she turned it off. She claims it just wasn't something she needed to see.
0: Oh,
1: really?
2: Just like any prepared actor, she used all the right buzzwords, like how she is neutral on Chauvin and Floyd. And she was very careful in choosing those dog whistle words, like how she knows the police are just there to protect the community in
1: general. But here's the real tearjerker moment. When she was asked about her view of the Black Lives Matter movement, she said, I am black and my life matters.
2: Yep, with the groups like Sliming Shyster Publishing Company looking to write a ghost book, this lady's probably first in line to write a tell-all book.
1: Hey, what can you tell us about contestant number 12?
2: Glad you asked. This white woman in her 40s works as a public adjuster type in the insurance business, and you know what that means.
1: Yep, she's going to be gaming the system for her own personal benefits. She's probably already gotten a book deal under contract, and she'll be ready to sue you and me for even mentioning her.
2: Good thing we don't know her name as of the time of this story, right?
1: Ouch! Well, she said she didn't expect to be part of something of this magnitude, but she knows the spotlight will be an issue on her personal safety, and she's willing to take that risk.
2: She said, I don't believe the criminal deserved to die, and the police did use excessive force, and he wasn't perfectly innocent. So you know, she's already made up her mind, right? Score a win
1: for the prosecution!
2: Contestant number 13 is a white woman in her 50s, and what she said in her questionnaire is a dead giveaway to her future guilty verdict vote. She said, this restraint ultimately was responsible for Mr. Floyd's demise, but she added, the video may not show the entirety of the situation that happened.
1: Oh, you're so right about that! Score another one for the prosecutor on that one. Her mind is already made up, locked up, tied up, and sent away in a nice little box.
2: There was one glimmer of hope in the defense. She was asked by the prosecutor about cooperation with the police, and she said, if you're not listening to what the commands are, obviously something needs to happen.
1: You make a good point there.
2: A white social worker in her 20s is contestant number 14.
1: Social worker? Female? 20-something? Just out of college? Liberal! We don't even need to know much more about her. That's a guilty verdict right there. Oh, you're
2: probably right. She said she had a negative to neutral opinion on the policeman, and that alone should have disqualified her. Her opinion was formed before hearing a single bit of evidence. But hey, maybe she's got a nice
1: body or pretty face. There's just something about a pretty face and a nice, firm set of... (coughs) excuse me? Values! I was going to say values! A nice, firm, tight set of values. Okay, I like a nice firm set of values, just like the next guy. And speaking of the next guy, our final contestant is a married white male in his 20s. He said he has a somewhat negative view of Officer Chauvin from all the publicity that he's read and heard about, and... Wait
2: a minute, they still let him on the jury?
1: Appears so. He said that should not have taken four or five cops to respond to a complaint about a counterfeit bill, and that the force seemed excessive.
2: Hmm, well, we know this flaming liberal is going to vote guilty.
1: Okay, folks, that's about all the time we have today on
2: Let's Pick a Jury! The trial has already begun, and we know how it will end. There can only be one verdict.
1: Especially with a biased, partial, hand-picked group of progressive liberals. Evidence and truth be damned, right? You are so right. So very right. Well, like I said, that's all the time we have live from the Minneapolis jury pool. So let's head on inside and watch the trial as it gets underway.
2: And we'll see you guys after the trial to let you know just how right we were. Steve Z and the Truth Hurts Program.
0: So as you know, the jury was selected, and the Chauvin trial is underway in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and should be somewhere else because of all the publicity. But hey, who am I to decide? But prosecutors did their opening statements, the defense did their opening statement, and prosecutors called their first two witnesses today in order to begin laying out their case in the trial of Derek Chauvin. Questions about how and when the graphic bystander video of Floyd's death would be used in the trial was answered just minutes into the opening statements. The prosecution played the whole video for the jury, nine minutes, 29 seconds of it, complete with audio of Floyd saying, I can't breathe 27 times. Now we can do that little experiment again, boys and girls, where you and I can both sit here to say I can't breathe over the course of eight and a half minutes. We will prove beyond any doubt that you can breathe. Chauvin is charged with second-degree murder, third-degree murder, second-degree manslaughter, and if convicted of the most serious charge, he could face ten and a half to fifteen years in prison under sentencing guidelines for first-time offenders. 200 plus members of the Minnesota National Guard are currently deployed in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area along with police, sheriff's deputies, and other law enforcement agencies, but they're maintaining a deliberate low-key presence. Speaking at a press conference on Monday afternoon, the Minneapolis police chief said his officers will not permit the kind of violence and property destruction that occurred right after Floyd died. Two hours after the opening of court on Monday morning, the first witness was called. The prosecution's first witness was 911 dispatcher Jenna Lee Scurry. She said she had a gut instinct something was wrong, and she had alerted a supervisor that something had gone wacky in the incident. The video of the street camera from the sidewalk and the street outside of the Cup Food Store where Floyd was arrested was shown. Dispatcher Scurry said she remembered looking up at her screen and seeing portions of a live feed from city surveillance videos. She said she remembers seeing Floyd in the cop car. Later she looked up and saw Floyd on the ground people in the video did not appear to move for a period of time. She said, I first asked if the screens had frozen because it hadn't changed. I became concerned that something might be wrong. It was a gut instinct, sort of. Scurry said she called a supervisor. If this was a form of use of force, I was calling them to let them know. The prosecutor then asked, have you ever prior to this date made a call like that to a sergeant? She replied, no. The prosecutor then played a Recording of the call that she made to her sergeant, where she can be heard saying, You can call me a snitch if you want to. I don't know if they have used force or not. They got something out of the squad car and all of them sat on this man. During cross examination, lead defense attorney Nelson used the same surveillance video to show how the officer's initial attempts to get Floyd into the squad car caused this car to shake. He questioned Scurry about her knowledge of police use of force policies. She said she was not a trained officer and was not sure, and she made the call to her supervisor she wasn't sure if officers had broken policy or not. Lead defense attorney then gave a 25-minute opening statement, arguing the evidence in the case is far greater than 9 minutes and 29 seconds. He said Floyd died as a result of drugs in his system and underlying medical conditions. He said other videos will be watched during the roughly month-long trial, and they will give a broader view of what all took place on May 25, 2020, and it will depict a scene where Floyd was on drugs and resisting arrest. The arrest, he said, was complicated by the size difference between the 5'9", 140-pound Officer Chauvin and the foot 220-pound George Floyd, who was high on drugs. Rather than having his legs on Chauvin's neck and back, as the prosecution alleges, Chauvin, according to Nelson, had one leg on the shoulder blade and the other on his arm. Nelson stated the cause of death would have been an enormous factor in the trial, disputing that Floyd died of asphyxia, and stated, What was Mr. Floyd's actual cause of death? The evidence will show that Mr. Floyd died of a cardiac arrhythmia that occurred as a result of hypertension, coronary disease, the ingestion of methamphetamine and fentanyl, and the adrenaline flowing through his body, all of which acted to further compromise an already compromised heart. Nelson said there is no political or social cause in this court. Chauvin did exactly what he had been trained to do over the course of his 19-year career. Folks, this is going to be interesting, and it's going to play out over your television over the next four weeks. Attorney Blackwell gave the opening statement for the prosecution, speaking for an hour. He walked jurors through police procedures and rules that govern the Minneapolis Police Department, where Chauvin worked without issue for 19 years. He said, you'll learn that on May 25th of 2020, Mr. Derek Chauvin betrayed his badge when he used excessive and unreasonable force upon the body of Mr. George Floyd. He put his knees upon the neck and back, grinding and crushing him till the very breath, until the very life was squeezed out of him. That, of course, we all know is a lie. Blackwell told jurors the case is not about all police or the difficult split-second decisions police must make. He said Chauvin had his knee on Floyd's neck for 9 minutes and 29 seconds, contrary to the widely reported estimate of 8 minutes and 46 seconds. There are 569 seconds and not a split second amongst them. He provided jurors with a visual timeline of that period of time, pointing to when bystanders attempted to intervene and when Floyd spoke his last words. Blackwell said, you will see he does not let up and he does not get up, even when Mr. Floyd doesn't have a pulse. You can believe your eyes. It's homicide. It's murder. During the jury selection, several of the jurors said they'd seen only part of the video. One juror, a retired woman in her 60s, said probably she's watched it on her own before the court proceedings for four or five minutes before turning it off. It was not something she needed to see. The family members took a knee outside of the courthouse, saying, the whole world is watching. Floyd's cousins, brothers, nephews, lawyers, and other representatives of the family and the Reverend Al Sharpton gathered in front of the courthouse, and they spoke to the public before taking a knee for eight minutes, 46 seconds the amount of time Chauvin was seen kneeling on Floyd's neck. Court documents now put it at more than nine minutes, so even their own family can't get the timing right. News helicopters clattered overhead as Mr. Crump, Ben Crump, the civil rights attorney, cited the Declaration of Independence, and Floyd's supporters demanded he receive the same justice that a white person would. George Floyd's brother, Rodney, warned Americans that watching the trial that attorneys for the defense were expected to cast doubt on Floyd's character. He said, Please don't be entertained by the lies they're going to throw out on him. The truth is he was murdered in the streets. No, brother. The truth is he was a criminal thug. He had a rap sheet as long as your arm. He was not a good person. He had drugs in his system. He was resisting arrest. He was fighting the police. That's the truth. The truth is, the autopsies, the science that everyone wants you to follow, will prove beyond any doubt that the man did not die of asphyxiation. He did not die because Chauvin's knee was on his neck. He died because his body gave out under the massive stresses of drug overdose, of heart condition, of respiratory ailment. The state called its second witness on Monday afternoon. She was a Speedway gas station cashier, and she was looking on from across the street, supposedly, the day that George Floyd died. We did not get any further information as of this point, and I didn't have the ability to spend the entire day watching that program, but we will keep you updated as the Chauvin trial continues. Meanwhile, in other parts of the world, It appears that the ship blocking the Suez Canal is now free and they have the supermoon to thank for it. We all know that the moon has effects on tides rising and falling and that supermoons can make tides ranges even greater than they normally are. To get that giant container ship that was blocking the Suez Canal unstuck, engineers actually needed the stars to align. The sun, the earth, and the moon, actually. After several days trying to dislodge the ever given cargo ship, which had veered off course and embedded itself in the side of the canal, a salvage team pinned their hopes on the week's full moon. Beginning on Sunday, water levels were set to rise a foot and a half higher than during normal high tides. That, of course, will make it easier to pull the thirteen hundred twelve foot vessel out of the side of the canal without having to unload a large number of the 18,000 plus containers that it was carrying. Tides are usually higher whenever there's a new moon or a full moon and that occurs when the moon is in direct alignment with the Sun with either the earth or the moon in the middle of the three. This causes a greater gravitational pull on both sides of the earth. As a result, tides are higher during high tide, low tides are lower during low tides. They're known as spring tides, and they occur twice a month. This time, the effect was amplified by the first supermoon of the year, when the full moon coincides with the closest point to Earth in its elliptical orbit. Supermoons do occur several times a year, and this one was known as the worm moon for the earthworms that appear in the soil of the northern hemisphere this time of year. When it became clear that tugboats alone weren't able to dislodge the big boat, the rescue effort began looking to the supermoon's pull on the tides and how it might help free the stranded vessel. A Dutch salvage operator flew in a team early Thursday morning to help with a new strategy which involved using the supermoon and the higher-than-normal tides. By Friday, the authority had completed about 87% of the dredging work that it thought would be needed to free the ship. They also removed close to 600,000 cubic feet of sand and mud. We have to dig in order to get it loose. We have to dig deep. Nothing else will happen until that is done, they said. On Saturday, the team was using 12 tugboats, two at the front, six pushing the back, and four pulling on the stern to try and dislodge the ever-given. Dredgers had by then removed 950,000 cubic feet of sand and dug 60 feet of depth around the ship. By Sunday night, the supermoon caused tide levels to exceed six and a half feet, which was 19 inches above the high tide on March 23rd, when the boat ran aground. By 2 a.m. local time, the operation was aided by the arrival of a Dutch flag tugboat with a pulling power of 285 metric tons, and that provided a major boost compared to the other tugboats working on the vessel. The days of dredging and digging began to pay off as the tugboats revved their engines to max RPM and they began to maneuver the giant ship in the higher tide. The effort managed to dislodge the ship's bow from the east side of the canal around 5 a.m. and shifted the stern 3,500 feet from the western side deep into the waterway, compared with the 140 feet when it stuck. A pair of massive tugboats pulled from the right side of the stern while others pushed from the left side. Others slowly pulled the front left side of the ship out towards the center of the canal slowly levering its bow out of the hole that it had gouged in the side of the canal. As the tide fell moving out towards the Red Sea, the ship slowly began to break clear. And since this didn't all happen overnight, work had to stop at the lower portion of tide and work began on finishing the job when midday rolled around. Hopes for a swift end to the drama were initially dashed by current and by high winds working against the salvage team But in the bright afternoon sunshine, the ship gently drifted towards the center of the canal, harnessed by an array of tugboats. It's finally free, and now your Nikes can flow freely without having to go all the way around, risking piracy and a loss of your oh-so-precious tennis shoes. Alejandro Mayorkas is the Department of Homeland Security head and he is now calling for more volunteers from the agency to go manage the surge of migrant cheerings at the border. He sent out a plea to the entire Department of Homeland Security workforce, including FEMA, seeking volunteers to work at the southern border. The request came a few weeks after he set up the volunteer force to help Customs and Border Protection deal with what is called a surge in migrants. I call it a crisis. Mayorkish wrote in an email sent to the entire department on Monday, we still need assistance. Please consider volunteering with the DHS volunteer force. I've asked leadership and I'm asking supervisors to make every effort to support our colleagues who request to volunteer. The safety of our employees is a priority and we've been able to provide the COVID-19 vaccine to any volunteer who wants one. Sorry folks. I shall not be going down there. We have enough trouble with our own citizens. They should have closed the border, as Donald Trump originally said, and we all know is the proper method of controlling illegal invading immigrants at our southern border. That's going to wrap up this afternoon's edition of the Truth Hurts program. Hope you enjoyed the show. We'll see you next time, and make it a great afternoon. Thank you for listening to the Truth Hurts program. Opinions expressed are protected free speech under the First Amendment to the US Constitution. We apologize if you were offended, but we retract nothing. Background music by Jason Shaw and Audionautics. Copyright 2021 The Truth Hurts Program Network. All rights reserved.